Well, Charles Plum was a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and became a jet fighter pilot in the Vietnam War. And after completing 75 successful missions, he was shot down and, uh, and parachuted down into enemy territory and was taken captive. He spent the next six years in a communist prison. And after he was released, he returned home and eventually traveled to, to speak about the lessons that he learned and, and about his experiences. He became a motivational speaker that would, would travel and talk about his survival. And one day he was in a restaurant with his wife and a man from another table comes up to him and interrupts their meal and says, You're Plum. I know who you are. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shot down. And Plum looks at him and says, yes, you're right. How did, how did you know all of this about me? He said, I packed your parachute. And Plum looked at him shocked, a little bit confused and grateful. And the man shook his hand and said, I guess it worked. <laughs> and Plum was very grateful that it did work. He said, I sure did. If your shoot had not worked, I wouldn't be here today. And so Plum went home and he couldn't sleep that night. He was thinking about the man and, and wondered what he might have looked like in his Navy uniform. He wondered how many times he, he passed him by, giving him no credit at all on the Kitty Hawk. He wondered how many times he might have seen him but, but not said hi or said good morning because he, of course, was a fighter pilot and the other man was just a sailor. He wondered how many times he just ignored this man. He thought of the many hours that that sailor must have spent on a long wooden table in the depths of the ship, carefully weaving together these parachutes, holding in his hands the fate of someone he didn't even know. And so the question arises as you think about this, who is packing your chute? Who is preparing that thing that will save you? And will you trust the one who packed it? When your plane is shot down, when you get into a moment of crisis, your only chance for survival is your parachute. And you better hope that the person who packed it knew what they were doing and that they can be counted on and relied on. Will you be saved? It all depends on that parachute. And so we are looking at 1 Peter for a few weeks, and we've spent a couple weeks there already. Last week we looked at the opening prayer of this letter, where, where Paul is laying out this great celebration of God's salvation. And there's this chain reaction that happens for salvation, it starts with God's mercy, that, that humanity is in need of something, that we are broken and needy and we need a Savior. And God comes in and He is merciful. He has pity on us. And God's mercy will lead to a new birth, a new life that is formed. 
The process of new creation gives us something new. And God's and, and then the, the new birth leads to a living hope where we reorient our focus onto the future. And with that new hope and that new future, we have an inheritance, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And so now we are children of God, full of His inheritance, and we are, are being born new and looking forward to this special inheritance, which is salvation. And so we've got this process of mercy to new birth to living hope to inheritance all to salvation and and salvation is so much more than simply saying we're not going to hell salvation is is new life to be had now and new life to be had in the future and so it's in light of that in, in light of that focus in on salvation that peter continues on in his letter he continues to, to, to give us these exhortations or, or these reflections on what it means to live in a society where, where Christians are finding themselves oppressed and excluded. He's writing to people who are being persecuted for, for who they are and persecuted for their faith, and he's saying, this is how to live in light of that. In a world that is hostile towards Christianity and hostile toward you, this is how to live. This is the framework to look at. What we believe about God and who he is and what he's done and what we believe about salvation should impact our ethics. It should impact the way we behave. And so 1 Peter 1.13 starts with the word therefore. Therefore is always this, this linking word to what was previously stated. So because of what he has said about salvation in this opening prayer, therefore, we're going to talk about this. Therefore is saying that what is said before now connects with this. Therefore, since we have received the great blessing of salvation, which included a new birth, which included a new hope, which included an assured inheritance, then you should be living different lives. Therefore, because of your salvation, you should be living a new life. And so remember last year, we we talked about our core beliefs. We talked about our core practices, and we talked about our core virtues that all come together to, to think about who we are and how we act and the lives that we live. That what we believe about us should impact our actions. And our actions, if done often enough, shape who we are our virtues. And so 1 Peter 1, as we go through this, it's not this tightly woven set of arguments. It's, it's more of a loose series of reflections on Christian ethics, on Christian behavior. What does it mean to be a Christian? As we read through these, there's four things that we're going to look at. Look for these, these four things. We've got hope, we've got holiness, we've got fear of God, and we've got loving one another. So let's read through those, through this, listening for those four things. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He, Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. You, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. All right, so Peter is, has got a mouthful, and he, he likes long sentences as well. <laughs> And so we've, we've got all of these concepts that are interwoven as, as he's talking about what it means to have a Christian ethic, a Christian way of behaving in this hostile world. And so the first thing he says right out of the box is talking about hope. He talks in verse 13, he uses this phrase in the NIV, minds that are alert and fully sober. Other translations say, prepare your minds for action. So he's saying here, you need to be prepared for this. You need to roll up your sleeves and be ready to work. Knowing that there's going to be a battle, you need to be prepared for this. You need to be alert. You need to be ready. You need to be fully sober, which means totally focused on what's at hand. No distractions. We're focused completely on God and who he is and what he's called us into. The world that we're in, it's in transition. The world around us is in decline. And God is calling us into something that we need to be prepared for. And God has a plan for us. And so we need to stay alert. Stay sober-minded. Stay focused on, on His plan for us. And don't get blurry-eyed with distractions. Don't get blurry-eyed with, with things that will, will shift your attention to something else. Keep your attention on God and what God is up to. And so as we think about the salvation that we have, we're able to focus on God, focus on God's purposes, and the hope that comes knowing that there is a future set aside for us. There is an inheritance for us. And so regardless of the things that are going on around us, regardless of the distractions, we take hope in a future. And we hold on to that. 
Peter's first exhortation on how to live as a Christian is to live a life of hope. The next one he tackles is holiness. He talks about, in verses 14 through 16, the importance of being obedient and living lives of holiness. We live lives of holiness because we, we, we have to be obedient to what God is calling us to. He starts with this negative statement. He says, do not conform to the evil desires of this world. So do not conform to this. Don't, don't take the evil things. Evil is life-stealing, is life life-draining. So don't pursue those evil things that you were pursuing before your salvation. And then he, does, he flips it and gives us a positive one. He says, God is holy, and so you should be holy as well. God is life-giving. And so the desires that we had before we were saved, before that new birth, and th- before, uh, before we received that inheritance, we had desires, and, and, and we should resist those desires. That if we're living in light of our salvation, we should be focusing on different things. We should, behaving, we, we should be behaving in different ways. Our salvation calls us to obedience, we need to be obedient to what God calls us to. And there's, there's a couple of reasons that Peter gives for that. First, we need to be obedient because we've been converted. We've been changed. We have had this new birth. And so if you are different, something should be different. And so we live lives of holiness because we have been converted to this new life. We have chosen this new path. We were not forced down this new path. We chose this new path. And part of choosing that path is choosing a life of holiness. But then he gives us a second reason. He says you should choose a path of holiness because God is holy. And if our inheritance is from God, that means we are children of God, which means God is our Father, and we should desire to be like our Father. We look forward to being like our Father. And so he sets this perfect example for us, and we should aspire to do that. Aspire to be that. So Peter's second exhortation here is to live lives of holiness. And then he explores this third one. He talks about the fear of God. The fear of God is one of those concepts that's difficult for us to wrap our mind around because the word fear automatically brings to mind all of these really negative things. To think about fear means to be paralyzed or, or terrified of something. You think of a, a scary movie or a phobia or, or something that, that, that you're really afraid of, and that's not something that you want to attach to your view of God. But a healthy fear is actually a pretty good thing. A healthy fear is something that is going to keep you safe, something that is going to protect you, something that's going to set boundaries for you. So for me, I fear coming up these stairs and tripping in front of everybody. I don't want to trip in front of everybody, and so it doesn't paralyze me. Obviously, I got up here. I don't sit on the front row rocking back and forth, unable to get off of the pew and up the stairs. It's not a paralyzing fear, but, but I walk carefully. <laughs> I take intentional steps to make sure I don't trip in front of you. Or take, for example, the fear of heights. For some people, they have a paralyzing fear of heights. Even standing up on a ladder is just 
a terrifying experience. And so they can't climb up to the ladder, or they, they can't look over a ledge because they have this paralyzing fear of something. And then there's the opposite end of that spectrum that has just no fear of heights whatsoever, and they just do reckless things and walk off cliffs and, and, and die. So, so you've got these two total extremes of, of people who, who the fear or lack of fear is, is impacting the way they live their lives. Both of them have very negative consequences, but a healthy fear says, I can get to the edge, I can enjoy the view, but I'm not going to get too close. I'm, I'm going to have a healthy respect for the fact that gravity will drag me down to the bottom of that canyon. And so you have a healthy fear that creates boundaries for you and allows you to really live life. And so for us, we have the same approach to God, that a fear of God is, is a healthy fear that, that he is all-powerful. He is perfect. He is holy. He has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. And so for us to approach that God is, is terrifying because he is so incredible. Or take the, the opposite extreme to have no respect for God whatsoever and just to, to kind of walk up to him and say, hey, what's up? You know, it's like th this is not the kind of relationship that we need to be having with God because he is the perfect, all-powerful God. And so we need a healthy fear that is life-giving for us because we respect him and we honor him for, for his greatness. And within that, we find life. And so the fear of God also creates boundaries for us. It gives us a shape for life. And so we need to be fearful of God in a healthy way. And so Peter's third exhortation for us is to, to live lives that fear God. That should impact the way we talk about God, right? And the way we interact with him and the way we interact with others. The fourth one is to love one another. So we've got this before and after result of the conversion. We, we, we're converted, and, and, and because of our conversion, because of our new life, because of our new birth and the inheritance that we receive and, and the new identity that we have within that, we are able to love others like we've never been able to love them before. We're, we're purified with new life. We're purified with, with this new hope. And this provides for us a foundation of love. And this love is really the fruit of a changed life. He says to love deeply from the heart. It's not something that we just do externally. It's not just a going through the motions. It's something that comes from within us. It is out of the overflow of the heart that we're able to love others the way God has called us to love others. And so Peter gives us this fourth exhortation to live lives of love. And so Peter is telling Christians in this hostile world, he's, he's telling them that because of your salvation, your life should look different in these four different ways. And this is not an exhaustive list. We're going to get to some more exhortations next week. But we've got these four that says, if, if you really understand your salvation and you really embrace your salvation, then these should be the marks of who you are. 
that as one who has been saved, you should be living a life of hope. You should be living a life of holiness. You should be living a life with healthy fear of God. You should be living a life that is, is loving one another. This is what he calls you into. This should be the fruit of the life that you have because of our salvation. And so Peter is, is presenting us this way of living. He's giving us this, this vision for, for a Christian ethic, what it means to behave like a Christian. Now, this is a real struggle for us today. This is, this is difficult for us to think about, like, like holiness, really? In our class this morning in the gym, we were talking about biblical sexuality and, and, and some of the, the comments that were made about how our culture views sexuality now. It's like, whatever. That's really the one-word definition of biblical sexuality. Whatever. And so for us to say that holiness is important, that's pretty countercultural. For us to say that, that we should be living lives fearing God, that's pretty countercultural. Living lives that are not me-centric, living lives that are future, hope-focused, that's countercultural. Living lives that are, are deeply from the heart, loving others, that's not really with our culture. And so the, the foundation of, of ethics, the foundation of this, really comes to this question that says, who defines right or wrong? Like, how do we define what's right? Like, what is holy? Can, can, we, can we sit around and argue about what is holy? Who defines that? Now, I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a philosopher. Uh, those topics in school just went over my head, and I wanted to go to something more practical. But this is my, my five-minute view of ethics. As, as we look at this question of who defines right and wrong, we live in this age where the, the Enlightenment way of thinking has produced what's called rational ethics that, that basically says that at their core, humans are good, that within us, we all have the right answer. Within us, we are all good and don't really need anything to make us better because at our core, we're good. And so, therefore, right and wrong are found within the individual. To answer this question, who defines right or wrong? Well, I do. And you do, and you do, and you do, and you do. Everybody defines their own right because it's defined within us what I feel to be true, what I feel to be okay. And that doesn't sound all that bad. It sounds like a lot of things that we talk about, even within Christian circles, that, that we think about just, just do the right thing. But the problem is, who is defining what is right? And so this is the dominant viewpoint of our world. We each are entitled to answer our own right or wrong question. And so the critical question is, what is the foundation of ethics? What is the foundation of our behavior? What is the foundation of holiness? Is the foundation within us, is it internal, or is this foundation external? Does it come from somewhere else? There, there are external sources of good and bad. 
When we define something out, when we define something within us, we hear things like reason and intuition and nature and instinct. Those are all the things that just feel right. Based on my intuition and, and instincts, this is good or this is bad. But then there's an external point of view that says that it comes from somewhere else. It comes from a revelation. It comes from a code. It comes from a covenant or, or a constitution. And so does it come from some external source? The Christian faith teaches the ethics, the answer of, who, of what is right and wrong. That is answered and defined by God through the word of God through scripture. That is the objective answer to what is right and wrong. Our world doesn't like that answer. To say that we would to, to, to say that God is the answer to right and wrong is challenging. But God has revealed to us through His Word the answer of what is right and wrong. And it is by His grace and by His mercy that we even receive that revelation. And this defines for us who we are, what's good, what's bad, what's right, and what's wrong. And so if we really believe in our salvation, if we really believe in who God is, then the answer to what is right and what is wrong is defined in his word alone. And this, I feel like, or it feels like, or we all have our own, is not a biblical way to pursue Christian ethics. Now, this is a challenge because to, to make this argument to anyone who is not a Christian is a very difficult argument to make because they don't hold this view, they don't have this faith, they do not have this salvation that defines how they behave. And so we live in this pluralistic world, a world where we have a variety of views of faith, a variety of views of right and wrong, and we have to coexist within this culture in some way while also holding true to what God has called us to be. Scott McKnight says it this way. He says, too many Christians have compromised themselves. We've compromised ourselves. Ours is a pluralistic world, and this means that public discourse has to be tolerant of opposing viewpoints and alternative foundations for ethical discussions. Christians must never pretend that the ethics of Christianity can be discovered by pure reason or by legislation. Pure reason and legislation is not going to get this world back on track. The proper motive for morals comes only from God's work of grace, and a life pleasing to God finds its blueprints in the pages of the Bible. And so we're in this hostile world, and we're in this place of tension where we have this pluralistic world that is telling us all these different answers. And we have to have the courage and we have to have the faith in our salvation and our faith in God to be able to stand firm to the things that he's called us to. But we also live in a world that is not going to answer things through reason and through legislation. 
a life of holiness, a life of hope, a life of loving one another, a life of fear of God, that is found through the grace of God, through that salvation. And if we do not have that in common, then the argument really is mute. We will not reason with someone who does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And so we have to get to a point where this is about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and that is going to govern entirely how we behave. And so our co-workers and our neighbors and, and fellow students may not choose to live the way that we have decided to live, but that doesn't mean there is not an absolute truth for us that there is an absolute right or wrong for us, that God has laid out for us in Scripture what he has called us to do. He has called us to a life of hope. He has called us to a life of holiness. He has, he has called us into a life that is fearful of God. He has called us into a life that is to love one another, and that is what we are called to. And so if we are to live in light of that, if that is to define our behavior, how does that change our attitudes to the things in our world? If we really believe in our salvation, if we really believe in who God is and what he has done for us and what he calls us into, what would that change in our lives? What would that change about our attitude towards material things? What would that change in our attitude as, in, in how we make plans for our future? How would that change how we, we spend our time and how we, we spend our money? How would that change the way we look at our health and, and the things that we, we feed ourselves and the things that we consume? If we live in light of our salvation, will it change the way we live? Because God tells us that's where life is found. That is where life is found, is if you will live in light of your salvation. Let's be standing together. Peter gives us these, these challenging words. It says, hey, if, if you are going to follow Christ... If, if you are going to, to live in light of what he has done for you, then it is going to call you to a different way of being. It's going to call you into different behavior. So live that life. That is our true life. And so if you have not embraced Jesus as the one that defines your life, if you have not confessed belief in him and allowed that to bring you a new birth, then we want to have that conversation with you today. We would love to, to be able to take your confession and, and watch you in the, in the waters of baptism say, I am done with my old life and it is time for a new birth. But for many of us, we, we have gone through that. We have confessed Jesus, and every day is a challenge to continue to confess Jesus in this world. It's a challenge for us to continue to live our salvation out in the midst of a hostile culture. And so we need to pray with one another and encourage one another and, and, and hold one another accountable to, to raise the bar on what it means to be a follower of Christ. We've focused too much on the present, and we need to focus on the future. We have focused uh, too much on ourselves instead of the fear of God. We have 
focused too much on worldly things and not on the holy things of God. And so let's help one another out as we spend this time in prayer and worship together. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for, for the time that you have for us here. We thank you for your word, and we pray that it will continue to define who we are and define the life that we live. God, I pray that you will speak to us, each one of us, where we're at in, in our journey of faith, and challenge us and encourage us to, to live lives that you've called us into. God, for the things that are not of you, the things that are eroding away at our lives, we surrender those to you, we confess those to you, and pray that you will work in us, that you will continue to restore us and bring us new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.